Why am I talking about rabbits? This is John Hears. <laughs> this is our podcast. This is where we talk about heavy things lightly. We do it from the perspective of these guys who go and these women who go overseas and both here at home to do what we call small project development with the world's extreme poor. We do it all over the place. Check us out at www.first-things.org. This is Watar. This is an interview with Dr. Timothy Patitsis. Yeah, he wrote Ethics of Beauty. That book is hot. That book is heavy and light and hot. Dr. Patitsis is the Dean of Hellenic College in Boston. He's an assistant professor and has been so since 2005. He is a philosopher and he is deeply, deeply invested in the notion and studying the notion of trauma and how that works. And his book, well, his book says something beautiful. You got to check it out today on Wattar. So Dr. Timothy Patitsis, thank you. How are you doing? John, fantastic. <laughs> You know, doing good. you're probably the perfect guest and my favorite person ever for wearing your West Virginia hat, even though I'm not a fan. Why is that? Are you are you guys from West Virginia or just? No, here's why. Because I often tonight today I did not. I often wear a baseball cap because I don't know the informality of it all makes me happy. And uh, I usually wear a Mets hat. Sometimes I'll throw something else in there. And then you came on. This wonderful author I couldn't wait to speak to with clear intellectual depth. And you got a West Virginia baseball hat on. That makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my nephew's a student at WVU. My, my niece was too before him. The, um, yeah, my head gets cold and that's why I wear it. But yes. another nice thing is that if you, if you do a podcast with a baseball hat, then you don't wear it. People don't recognize you. So you can go back to being uh, anonymous. Well, let's see if we can make you less anonymous because you took. So we'll talk about the book. You know, our gig on here is to try to figure out heavy things lightly and then do it in part to bring in this, the experiences of our field workers at First Things who are working in really old world places like West Africa and Georgia, and Guatemala with the Mayan folk and whatnot. But your book. It's like a perfect entree into some really beautiful conversations about stuff old, in particular, your theory of ethics, this use of the word beauty. So I guess without getting too, I don't know, I like the weeds, but just take us through, there's this old world imagery in your writing about um, above and below. And it's like beauty got put below and then modern people took below as bad or something or like not relevant mm. and am i reading that right did beauty get demoted in post-enlightenment society to a point where you're like well it's really not trustworthy can't really trust that is is that something like what you're trying to say when you talk about ethics of beauty your way you know when when you you write a book you know you kind of start with a basic premise and you unfold it certainly most of the work for the book was done, you know, four or five years before it printed. And your, your thinking continues to unfold, you know, unfold and evolve. And, and then sometimes, you know, things could be more nuanced or 
Um, but somehow, I guess the. I guess kind of one orthodox idea is that somehow the way of the heart was was diminished in the West. Mm. And it's hard to say when, but for some people, it's maybe the 13th century or 12th century that somehow the university professor pushes aside the mystic as being the the authentic spokesperson, spokesman for theology and for the church. And, you know, but, but that could be nuanced a thousand ways, right? It's not really until the late 1800s at Vatican I and afterwards that the Roman Catholic Church really names uh, St. Thomas Aquinas as, you know, the doctor of, he's, he is a doctor of the church, but, you know, puts him as almost as this is it. Right. Um, and then you can nuance that too. You can say, okay, within the, Thomist system, you know, there's a lot of reference to Dionysius Theriopagite and you know what's really going on there. But I I think, you know, what we see in our society is, you know, we have a way of truth called science. I mean, our society today, and we have a way of goodness called technology or policy. Right. And uh and the way of beauty has no name and is uh, constantly collapsed into these other realms, like abstract art is a kind of intellectualization of art. And, um, and and somehow I think, you know, that that feminists and people like that should take note, somehow the, the, the proscription against beauty and against the way of the heart also goes to this notion of, you know, Western logocentrism, like they call it. It has to go somehow to this, that the feminine is suspect. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so there's something, some, yeah. The hyster- but, yeah. There's a his. Well, it gets caught up in emotion. You're like, well, thanks for the emotion. Thanks for weighing in with your emotion, which of course moves toward hysteria, which of course is associated with the feminine. And then all of a sudden, none of that counts toward an understanding of right or wrong or goodness or truth. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and then, and then, so, so all of that, you know, you could. I mean, people can slice and dice things and they they can defend whatever. But I see it more vividly in terms of science itself, because my mentor and my friend, the last six years of her life was the late Jane Jacobs. And she wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And it's a great book about city planning. That's true. But in the final chapter, she says, hey, guess what? There's a new kind of science that we've only really discovered since 1932. And she's writing in 1961, publishing in 61. So within 30 years, and it is the science of organized wholes, where the sum, where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's the science of systems, of organic complexity. And this realm, now it's 2022. So what is that? 61 years later, still does not get the the direct sustained attention it deserves in the academy and it's because that is the science that corresponds to wholeness or beauty right. and it's a science that somehow women seem to be poised to make more lasting contributions to and um so, so i think even if you 
remove, let's say, the the Orthodox versus Catholic or East versus West thing. Sure. I love that stuff, just, by the way. But yeah, let's get it out of there for a second. For a second. You can just say, even within science itself, this kind of truth-first science of statistics, this goodness-first science of two-variable reductionism, hey, those get respected as real. And this other science, you know, ah, gets pushed. Yeah. And... The whole academy should have been revolutionized after Death and Life was published. We all should have said, every professor should have said, oh, there's three kinds of scientific problem solving. And I can see clearly that in my field, we need all three. Right. And let's be explicit about when we're using which. And the university is dull and ridiculous because it hasn't taken that foundational step. So help, help with folks who haven't read the book. Um, the ethics of beauty guys we'll talk about it. i'll link it but i'll uh, ethics of beauty so just give us a little what is the science of beauty or the science of the whole i know mm. you're not going to be able to do logos with it like right you won't be able to do truth words on some level you have to experience it but how would you try to help us understand it in word yeah so this that's a good question i don't get asked that a lot what, what is the science of the whole well, it was when, when we're looking at, well, right here in Boston, there's something called EGC, the Emmanuel Gospel Center. And it's a um, it's an evangelical um, Protestant research center and center for urban ministry, gospel ministry. And they they are very explicit about trying to use an organic systems approach. So they have a book that they use, one of their directors wrote, and it's called something like The Cat and the Toaster. And basically the idea is that uh, living systems like a cat cannot be dissected and reassembled in the same way that simpler systems, you know, non-living systems like cats, I mean, excuse me, like toasters can be. Mm. And that's really what Jane Jacobs was saying in 1961. The people who thought the city was a toaster took the reins of power in prescribing for the city. And... Yes. Where, wow. wherever they wherever they had the power wherever they got the power to do so they killed the cat and this is robert moses and guys like that right got and and this the whole urban renewal act or whatever the actual title of it was of 1949 it stayed in power mm -hmm. for 25 years mm -hmm. that was a federal act and yeah everything was statistics that kind of truth first and then some reductive solution is you know the two variable approach and she's, she's saying, look, I'm not here to argue with you about taste or fashion. I'm here to show that they're using a science. She doesn't say it quite this explicitly, but close. Mm -hmm. They're using a science that is appropriate for dead systems. And what they're doing to the living city is murdering it. And she uses that phrase, the witless murder, the witless murder of American cities. So that's what's that's what's at stake. If you use the wrong kind of science, so we're not talking about religion yet. We're not talking about philosophy or Romanides, you know, saying that uh, you know the uh, Carolingians and the Merovingians and his whole thesis of what went wrong in the West, which, which is, is yeah, yeah, which is fine. I like yeah, the fine. thesis, but but we're just saying, hey, uh, wake up. There's three kinds of science, and be explicit about which one you're using, and explain. Especially be explicit about why in the world we would use the first two kinds to study something living. Now, sometimes you do, but you have to be, you know, tell us why. The first two kinds being 
uh, I, I think you define them as truth and goodness. So, so in her, this guy named Warren Weaver, and it just it was uh, serendipitous that she encountered his work as she was writing Death and Life of Great American Cities. And he, he says, look, let's just give a history of science over the last 360 years, since 1600. He says, for the first 300 years, we could only do two variable problems. You know, what he calls them problems in simplicity, but one variable controls or depends on another variable. And he says, hey, that works. And we came up with a million technologies based on that. And here's what they are. And it's fine. Then he says, between 1900 and 1920, we swiftly developed the computational ability or the, the analytical ability to handle millions and billions of variables in random systems. And he says, here's, what, here's the power that gives us. And then he says, but only since about 1932 have we studied this third kind of problem, mid-range of variables, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, the processes, it exists in time. There's some kind of flow in time to the thing. And, he's, and, and he says, it is to be hoped that now that we have this discovery, it will be used widely. And I'm sitting here checking my watch in 2022 going, hey, when's that memo going to hit? When's that? And the other weird thing. <laughs> anytime you want, guys. Anytime you want. <laughs> the, the, the really odd thing I hear after... You know, first things, I was just in Georgia just two weeks ago. I don't think we can call it a discovery. I mean, it's a discovery of things forgotten maybe in the West, but like the third way, the science of the whole, I mean, Hindus have been talking like that for 4,000 years. Like it's, it's a, is it a rediscovery? And then, then is there some sort of, um, is there some sort of bias in trying to embrace something that's old and quote religious, is that maybe what's going on? Yeah, I mean, there's something occult about life, right? There's something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's something. Um, what's the word? There's something almost creepy about a living thing. You know, it's like whoa. Yeah, mysterious. Like, yeah, you're a three year old boy and you want to stamp that ant dead. You know, it's like what the heck's it doing? <laughs> totally. I, I remember doing that. What? Who does he I, think he is? I did that. Crunch, crunch. Yeah, like what is that creature that's stomping those little living, you know, insects? Right. What is this thing? Frankenstein. Well, we can call it a discovery in this sense, because once we, from 1600 on, you know, we have the falsifiable hypothesis, we have a real scientific method, and we start from the beginning or the end or whatever, but we, we start sort of with a clean slate. Eventually we get to this, we have to admit that, these other two kinds of science can't handle life. And so we, like you said, we rediscover. So what I say in the book is probably the ancients were better at holistic systems. And, you know, but they did not have our powerful right. reductive techniques, you know. Right. And so we've switched, you know, we switched the abilities. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It is the ancients. And it's not just anyone that's the way of the heart. Anyone, um, you know, I've got a book in here about you know uh somewhere in my bookshelves about uh, native american farming techniques and how mm -hmm. they understood holes as greater than the sum i mean that was the, the like the first thing that yeah. squanto taught the pilgrims is like you don't just plant this crop alone but you plant it with two other crops and they you know, they're going to feed off each other 
And you're going to put the dead fish in there too with the seeds. Right. Well, and this is, yeah, this is the thing as a convert to orthodoxy and you're orthodox. And obviously your book is all about this. It's natural to the, to liturgy. It's, it's natural to worship and to, to religion. One of the things I kept thinking of reading your book, and by the way, guys, you got to read this book. It's fantastic. Um, was the ancient one ancient one and you know is better than me uh i used to be really good at history and then i started this other life but one <laughs> of the ancient ideas was that religion right out of the latin ligament to bind that it's not a question is if you're religious sort of the way we speak in the modern world like oh i'm not religious the, the latins and well the ancients would say well no that's the premise of your human existence is that you're religious the question is is what are the bindings what are the ligaments that hold your body together that your worldview and in that sense we've taken maybe beauty out, out as one of the ligaments necessary for <laughs> for for, for, a, for a proper binding maybe something yeah. like that yeah. We, we, yeah we have it's something like that anyway i, I couldn't stop thinking about that as I, as i read um, tell me about motivations for this book. You talk about it a little bit early on. They're really beautiful motivations. You were trying to get some answers done, right? I mean, it's, uh, I think what really triggered it was reading um, uh, Jonathan Shea's Achilles in Vietnam. And there, what you have is, what you have described, though he doesn't use these terms, you take a, a person where the whole really is greater than the sum of its parts, a living soul healthy child young person adult if you traumatize them it's like you capture them into a two variable scientific problem there's the persecutor or the traumatic event and we become objectified we become an object of that event and afterwards we struggle to recover our wholeness and we we look like a two variable problem a trigger and you know we're we're off in another direction uh, yeah a, a memory and we enter a different biological um hormonal and chemical profile in the brain and how do we go how do we get ourselves back to a whole that's part of the question of so so the question of soul healing is paralleled by when you're injured in that way you are a two variable kind of dead problem and, mm -hmm. and we want, we don't want that for you. We want to bring you back to full life. You can't be triggered. You can't be manipulated. You're, you're not sabotaging yourself in ways that you yourself don't want to. Mm. Um, so, so it was, it was definitely connected with the science and, you know, all these things were together for me, but, but also, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it was, it was concerned for soldiers. That it was, was right. It was real yeah. humans who, yeah. how were you seeing them? How did they come into your world, these particular trauma victims? Were, were you well, going it, out or how did that work? Just, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the fall of Saigon. Although I was a little kid, I thought it was the most terrible thing in the world. I sensed what a, what a misery and a chaos was, was involved in that failure of our country. And, um, and then, of course, it starts to enter the literature and movies and movies like First Blood and other movies that lay out the experience of a traumatized person. And 
I just remember as a young person thinking, you know, something profound is going on in that traumatized person. Well, you know, th that is that is a special kind of of hell, mm -hmm. and um, so I had that concern. And then, and then years later, when I finally did get around to reading Achilles in Vietnam, by then I was a theologian at a seminary here at Holy Cross and everything. And I, I thought, well, here obviously he's describing Shay is describing the progressive excommunication of the person from others, from the world, and finally from their own self. So, so, so that was another, you know, that was a that was a thread, and and then it tied in for for me. So there was a unique moment in my life, standing in a church with smells and bells, as I sometimes say about orthodoxy, where I can't say I could intellectualize or articulate the healing going on, but something mm -hmm. was happening in there. And it feels like you had a similar experience growing up where like, I don't know, this is, I don't, this is special. And somehow that got attached to the notion that I'm going to help these guys. It does feel like you're trying, it's not missionary work as much as it's like, guys, I got this medicine. I've had it my whole life, but I really want you to try it. It feels like that through through your book. Like, check this out. It's like this hidden thing. Is is Am I right to say that's something like the book? Something like that. Yeah, I think it's uh, a feeling that um, I mean, w war is just a, is a, such a terrible thing. I mean, I know that it's a part of a fallen world. Um, but but in, in, yeah, at the time, I think I wrote it, I just thought these guys deserve better. Mm. And they're not the only ones who are traumatized. And the fact that we're, according to Jonathan Shea and then a book I read later as I was writing my book, um, Bessel van der Kolk's uh, The Body Keeps the Score. You know, we're not only not healing trauma, we often are making it worse mm. by our attempts to heal it. And um, yeah, you know, I'm a little older now. I don't have quite that sense of outrage. And, you know, it's because that's dangerous too, to, to, to sit in that for too long as a motivation. Um, I, I think I was also reading Wounded by Love, you know, by Elder Porfirios and, oh, okay. and his, you know, and, and that's, I think that's really what drove me to this coin, this very marketable phrase. I have, I like aesthetics and I also I like marketing slogans of beauty first. And I think it's a good slogan and it makes sense. Um, and you could see that trauma was an encounter with ugliness and malice that seems to disclose the existential meaninglessness of life or of the world. Whereas how we were created by God and how mm -hmm. meant to be recreated is an encounter with beauty or theophany, but beauty within which we discover a, a living, a life-giving morality. The practice, devotion to that beauty, practice of that goodness makes us become true. It, it also can, um, there's less of focus on knowing the truth and more focus on becoming true. Like, like you said a moment ago, these ancients didn't have our scientific knowledge, but they were true. Yeah. Yeah. They were closer in, to in ways that we don't seem to be. <laughs> Let me, let's take a quick break, but I want to ask you about Jordan Peterson, who might disagree with you. Not that okay. he's here with us, but the quick break on uh, Watar.
Hey, Mal. Hey. Uh, can Ma- I call you? Hey, Mal. Hey. Molly. Hey, Mal. Hey. You're a super hey. donor, and you're here to tell us super. how we can a- you can aid us in coming up with great ideas for raising Eat you? money. <laughs> well, I can aid. <laughs> aid you. No, aid, A-I-D. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't really want to You can assist us. John, I think we should probably do some um, slap bracelets. Do you know what slap bracelets are? No. You slap them, and then they become bracelets. Wait. What? Anyway, the kids kids in their early 90s loved them. So I just think- Snap them or slap them? Well, maybe that's like a Rocky Divide thing. Like you slap them here on the West Coast and you snap them on the East Side. But anyway, um, bracelets, that's that's my uh, that's my idea. You think we week. should have First Things Foundation bracelets? Yes, but first you need to make the what would Uncle Seth do? T-shirts. Bracelets. Bracelet. No, it's, this isn't the t-shirt idea, John. This is the bracelet idea. Okay, and you think that will Little by us, little, little by little. That will meet our steps. budgetary goals by selling set, Uncle oh, Seth yeah. bracelets. Yeah, but then people can like, if they don't end up selling, then you can just like offload them somewhere, no big deal. Because people won't know what WWUSD stands for. <laughs> Hi, we're back. I want to ask you about Jordan Peterson, but you know what? At the beginning, I forgot. Uh, as per, we still opened a Georgian restaurant as per our uh, First Things Foundation work. It's a nonprofit restaurant. We mm-hmm. toast there. And I don't know, have you ever gone to a Georgian feast? Ever no. Encountered no. any Georgians? Oh, come on. I'm going to come up there and we'll throw one. Um, but yeah, there's always a toast. And in some ways, there, it's relevant to your book. In that the Toastmaster's idea is to is to unite heaven and earth in the heart, sort of in the middle. So the the, the bowels of your body sort of represent eros, and the, the head represents wow. the eternal, the stable versus the unstable, united in the heart. So how about a toast to to beauty found in that center place? May we all have a slice of it so we can heal. Gangi Marjos, that means to you the victory. So tell me about Peterson says again, again, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I think he's really helpful to whole swaths of people. Um, and I yes. really like, like what he's doing, you know, and whatever, but he's really often talking about putting spiders back in front of people who are traumatized by spiders and putting the trauma back in front of people as a methodology. And, you know, it, I think it comes out of Freud and, whatnot but what's your what's your what's your thoughts on that as a method of fixing trauma i I mean handsome is as handsome does i think that that is a general you know good pastoral guideline like what you know what is methodologies and first principles and all that like what is what is working for one particular person mm. and and i think about that this handsome is as handsome does in in terms of complexity not in terms of utilitarianism because and and here's here's what i mean 
Napoleon was asked, what would you rather have, a, a, a good general or a lucky general? And he said, give me the lucky general every time. And what that means is that um, com combat and, and the clash of armies, you know, that are reacting to each other and, you know, the, the classic Clausewitz thing under a situation of friction and uncertainty and all that is, is a complex system. And the person who appears lucky is more likely doing something that we just can't put our finger on. Uh, and so, so there has to be some respect. It's not utilitarianism exactly because we don't really know what the heck they're doing or if maybe they're not doing. I get that. But, but in that sense, you know, handsome is as handsome does with, you know, what brings people along. And if it's going to therapy twice a week or three times a week, and if it's a little bit of, you know, re, you know, introduction of the thing that frightens us, fine. I, I think that um, in general, though, it seems like what we need is, you know, a deepening sense of integration yes. that comes in the presence of theophany or beauty or communion. So when we encounter a saint, something is restored in us. Right. And I, right. I explain that in the book because a lot of people do say, okay, before you can, you know, a, a, a attempt to heal this traumatic stress, you have to, um, uh, you know, remove the person from the trauma traumatizing situation. And what I say is that for some people, the only, the first time that they are truly removed from a traumatizing situation is when they encounter a saint. The rest oh. of us are just too rough. We don't, we don't know how, we don't know yeah, why, we don't know yeah. what we're doing wrong, but we're too, too hard. It and makes it's re-traumatizing. Re well, because yeah, we don't, our edges are too sharp. It makes me think. Yeah, can I share this thought? But I want you to comment on this because it could be crazy, but it makes me think like a, the pictures behind me. I've got one of my father there and he is disintegrated right now, like without sounding crap. And that's what death is on some level. It's a disintegration. But his picture is a symbolos or an inter fully integrated. Now, is he present? Here's what I mean. He's present. When I look at that picture, I am not traumatized. I am actually toward healing. It's really wild. But the pixels themselves are like the cells of my father's body. Apart, they are disintegrated and deadly or something or death filled. But when their pixels are all put back together, there's an actual presence of <laughs> like, oh, and it's joy. And I don't really have to go back to his death. I can just stay in that moment. And it reminds me of an icon of a saint. Like if you see St. Paisios, then you're, the icon must be kissed. Like I must approach that icon because it's holding something together for me. And thank you. And maybe, yeah, that's the beautiful thing. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think of that? I love that. I, you, I don't know. You brought that out of me. It feels real to me, though. I mean, th th I think that's true, you know, and I think that this, an encounter with wholeness, you know, is, is just a fantastic thing. Be beauty is, it can be fantastically healing thing. Um, I think, you know, 
I think in the West, and, and probably someone like Jordan Peterson wants to emphasize, he wants to emphasize the cross more than the resurrection, mm -hmm. right? Nice. And for him, that cross is responsibility, growing up, facing the fact that your life is zero. And if you continue on this path in 10 years, it'll be, you know, even less than zero. And, and I understand that. And, and then the resurrection that is offered is just his love. Although he's not really saying that, but that is what's happening. Like his kindness, his love, his integrity, his concern that people not lose their, waste their lives mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is like this father thing. And it, it, that is a sufficient, beautiful cover for people to accept the cross that he's also offering. Um, what we see in the church repeatedly is people who are so mild, you know, mildness is the thing that's missing, are, are so intensely mild that although they say nothing about morality and you know, somehow we repent utterly in their presence. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way, and sure. I certainly love being in a parish where the priest lays down a law a little bit and, you know, it's, and, and, and maybe more than a little bit and, and it's good you know, for me right now where I'm at, especially it's, it's preferred. Um, but we do have, you know, this continued witness of some people, just the gaze of love. And that's enough. Is that the, is that meekness? It's a big, a, meekness is a big part of it. Yeah. 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 And, and, I think so. Yeah, it's 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 the missing I, link. I, just being an Athos once, and then also meeting out uh, at St. Anthony with well, Elder Frem, and this is going to sound weird too, but, and then working in West Africa, when I would go into a village that I, that people didn't know me, the people were so mild. I like your word. Um, they were so willing to just, Give me a comfortable seat and be hospitable and simple, but really simple, like almost to a a a point of making me uncomfortable. Well, Elder Ephraim had like this mildness to him that reminded me of this phrase, the meek will inherit the earth. And I I see it in these places where we work. It's pretty wild. And I always think I don't want to be like that. <laughs> I don't want to be that kind of meek. And Maybe I should try harder. Can you even try to be like that with this big brain we're carrying around in the intellectual West? Is it possible? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love you. I love the way you. I don't know. That's I, 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 that's it. I, I was something happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was getting a haircut, and I was coming back to uh, my campus or whatever. And, you know, it was one of these moments where traffic was jammed everywhere. So I fired up the Waze app, W-A-Z-E, you know, and all of a sudden it's taking me on side roads, unused roads, roads that, that I have driven within hundreds of yards of and never seen in my life, you know, in 15 years of being here. And these roads, they have a softness the there's a there's a gentleness to the curve of the road the there's a softness to the houses to the setbacks everything about it is mild and that's how we built as americans until we came back from world war ii and said we're going to beat our swords into plowshares and use our fantastic military prowess and militarize the whole damn country 
you know, and and in the name of progress and you know materialism, and we built you know the, the cookie cutter suburb. What's important to see in those suburbs, you know, that we've built since the war is that there's nothing feminine in them. Yeah, there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing mild. It's the proscription of femininity. It's a war. The country is on a war footing in its building program. And just like, you know, every soldier had the same rifle, you know, every freaking strip mall has the same 15 junky retailers and lousy restaurants. And it's just everything is, but it's all okay because we're at war. The war is against God knows what. And, uh, you know, you're in the army now and you got to just suck it up and get the job, get the mission done. Yeah. Meekness doesn't have a place in that. I think you're really right. I think you can see the same approach to aid. And I think I know you you like this topic, too. But the, the Marshall Plan, which was really good at extending that military sort of precision mentality into back into Europe to build, they rebuilt Europe. That was then extended to, quote, developing nations to every type of culture, not just European culture. It was extended in in its form to every culture, to Africa, to Asia. And that precision and that productivity was was demanded of local people so that they could, quote, catch up. And we brought it home, like you said. Yeah, that's interesting. Schooling became that way more School and more. Became, yeah, more and more. Every, everyone has been conscript, conscripted. And, of course, debt is the great lever of conscription. You know, everyone's in debt. Everyone's, you know, paycheck to paycheck and everyone, you know, all these, we put these third world countries into horrible indebtedness. They can't escape thing. Everyone's in this mess. And um, it's now, but statistically we're better off, right? We have longer life expectancy. We have a higher per capita, whatever. I know, but I don't want to live longer. yeah. Do I want to live longer? I interrupted you. Go ahead. Do, do we want well, to live I, longer? As, oh, as a problem in the first two kinds of science, hey, it's all been a success. True. True. Except the fact that the debts cannot be repaid shows you that the third kind of science, I mean, by the standards of wholeness, these developing economies that we developed are so stunted and so malformed. As I try to say somewhere, I don't remember where, look, if foreign aid had been done well, it would be our, it would be like like Norway's national fund, you know, where they invest their oil money in, you know, in stocks or something. If if we had done it well, the U.S. would own, you know, twenty percent of the stock market in every country on Earth. I mean, we would we wouldn't need to work anymore. We could we have we would just live off the. No, instead. No one can ever pay back these development loans. Right. They're all a sham. They're all a joke. Right. They're all meant to make work for bankers, unions, capitalists, industrialists, and religious philanthropists. And they don't, they don't, they're not germane to what development is. That's and right. No, they're just not, they're just inst- instruments of empire building. Well, they don't attend to, to beauty, to wholeness. They don't attend to the person, which of course, what you said earlier, your analogy, I guess it is, or the conversation you had about the cat and the toaster, I don't think I'll ever forget that. It's it's a good one. And it's these, these guys one. down the street, 
uh, coin that. One. Other people have thought of that, you know, too, I think, but it's, it's, and, and that's not a bad book. They wrote a whole book on Christian ministry from the perspective and saying, hey, you know, if, if it's a living system, then how do you befriend that system? You know who did this for me at a high, high level, and he was Orthodox, Philip Sherrard in The Rape of Man in Nature. I don't know if you ever read that. Oh, my I, God. I, I didn't, but Sherrard had that eye for wholeness, yeah? Yes, and he, totally. his book basically takes you through the cat and the toaster and how the West embraced the toaster, and he's he's almost banging on the computer or on, the, on, the, on his desk and saying, and don't get me wrong, I have a lot of friends who are scientists, but he's basically screaming without, I won't curse, but he's saying, why are we listening to these people who have an incomplete understanding of wisdom? They, they're they really good at one, maybe two aspects of the whole. Why do we keep lifting? And he's mad. He's not mad, but he's he's not pulling punches and he's showing how it's tied into the theology, how the, the theology is now we, what we would think of as anthropology. Of course, they took out the theos. And so they've actually created us all into these toasters. And he's like, why are we listening to them? And it's really fascinating. That book started me on this old world, new world kind of, well, your book, I feel like is volume two of like, wait a minute, guys, slow down, slow down. It's really yeah, I mean, beautiful that I, way. I, I mean... You know, Wendell Berry's um, The Unsettling of America, E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful, Christopher Alexander's The Timeless Way of Building, and you can just add and add and add books to that. I think really what I wanted to do in The Ethics of Beauty was how to pull all those together yeah. by saying that this that beauty exists in science. We have a postmodern science. It's called biology. It's called systems theory. And... And and to say that, um, um, you know, we can right. I, I just I didn't want to write a mystical book that is just one more poem to the old way. I, you know, the ethics of beauty is kind of dull in a sense. It just lays it out. Okay, this is this is it, and this is this is a simple choice to make. Jane Jacobs in chapter twenty-two of Death and Life. She doesn't say. We can't use the first two kinds of science. She just says, you know, we have to know which one to use at which time. That's just so, that's all. Which is brilliant, which is, by the way, something she, sa lost she, saves, us. she saves the enlightenment from itself. Okay. So thank you because often I'm, you know, for folks who like this podcast, I hammer hard on the enlightenment. But I get these <laughs> listeners every now and then will be like, it's not all bad, is it? Of course it's not all bad. The human beings are always creative and they're always doing something like trying mm -hmm. to be beautiful. It's just, we still need it in our vocabulary, right? We should be able to use these terms without an embarrassment. I like what your book implies. There's a couple references you make to, like you shouldn't be embarrassed to say, well, what about the beauty quotient? <laughs> yeah. But how does that fit in guys? Like, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. So yeah. And, and, and in general, we get more done if we can let the anger side of things go. And, um, certainly when we first discover that we're being conned, uh, mm. we're going to be outraged and, but we do have to kind of work through that and say, you know, 
Well, here you see in agriculture, for example. So, so I think like this guy, Gabe, Gabe Brown, he, he's a rancher in, in North Dakota, and he is kind of one of the deans, one of the five, five or six leaders of this regenerative agriculture movement. And it's a much more complex systems approach to farming even than, than organic agriculture is. And it, it really has so much hope for um, climate mitigation. We just can capture so, so much carbon recaptured into the soil and make the soil healthier and packed with biology. And, um, and there's so much, um, he's had so much success in increasing how much rain his land can infiltrate per hour. Mm -hmm. he, used to, he used to do a half an inch an hour. Now he does 13 inches an hour. That's a 26 fold increase. Wow. He, he says in some of his lectures, drought, we cause drought. If we're throwing away all that, you know, if the other 12 inches of rain are just running off, mm -hmm. then of course we're going to have drought afterwards. But so, so I, I think it's important to pick and choose these kind of movements and invest in them, invest in them. Um, but I, but as a dean of a college, I think that, you know, in, you know, we have to teach people what the three kinds of science are, how they relate to beauty, the difference between a cat and a toaster. We have to get people talking the language of systems, of living systems. Mm -hmm. If you have a liberal arts education, I believe, you have an advantage in uh, you've cultivated an aesthetic sense, an eye for wholeness mm -hmm. that helps you see when a living system is healthy or unhealthy. Whereas um, engineering education, as we currently do, can tend to blind you to that holistic, you know, what your eye can obviously see with yeah. a little bit of training. Yeah. And, and so you, you know, you, 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 it'll, your education will make you dumber. Let me ask you a question about that. And we're just going to take one quick, teeny little break. We'll be right back. Hey, guys. More than 21 projects on four continents. 12 field workers. And lots and lots of good vibes. We help local people. Visionaries. We call them impresarios. And those people are all about helping their own community and their own families. They're fire starters, change makers. We find them in places like East Africa, West Africa, the Caucasus, Central America, and right here at home. And then we say, what do you need to make facile? That's the French word for easy. What do you need to make your vision come true? And then we support them with funds and wise people and intellectual assistance, and most of all, with whatever they need. That's what our field workers do in the Peace Corps style living in mud huts. This is the end of year appeal. We're trying to meet our match of $75,000 by January 1st. We're trying to raise all of the funds we need for 2023, and we're doing it today on our website, www.first-things.org. Go to our website, assist us by becoming a recurring donor, or even better yet, we have an ask. We need to get to $75,000. I would love for you to give $75,000, or contact me and give $75,000, or give $5 and you will double your offer. Whatever it is, 
Our money goes directly to the field workers who go directly to the field. Everything you give from now until January 1st is all about the field. At First Things Foundation, our goal is honest aid offered authentically. One-to-one, face-to-face. Given with love and in truth. First Things Foundation, creation begins with sacrifice. Thank you. So here's the question. Can we recover? So one of the problems, as you know, and I'm not speaking to your about your university. I'm not. It's okay. It doesn't matter. We can speak in generalities. The university itself has succumbed to the the two truth ethics system of all all, all low, you know, all mind, intellect, and and goodness. And so, I'm not saying it's impossible. Is there some sort of metanoia that is going to happen on a university level or the place wherever kids go after, say, 15 or 16 years old? Maybe it's not a university system. Maybe there's a whole change. Is there something that has to happen to what we have, to where we have arrived? Do we have to change something about us? How does it work? Oh, yeah. First of all, you know, I I mean, I I didn't know that the... um, the lockdown was going to last as long as it did or, you know, become as politicized as it was and just, you know, try to close all public debate on, you know, the wisdom of that. It was just weird. Now we're in a situation where we've, we've, we've kind of are putting the Russians into a corner. Yeah. And we seem to be kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen there? I don't know. I'm not laughing, you know, because it's tragic and, and horrible, the people that are dying. But it does feel like our leaders are just playing a game of poker and they're not really your game of chess on all, all sides. Um, I mean, we, we could be in, in big trouble, bigger trouble than we realize. I mean, I mm-hmm. hope that's not the case. Uh, okay. Assuming that we don't have, you know, a general third world war. Um People need something that will give them training in nonlinear order in living systems. Orthodox liturgy does that. It's pretty simple. If you immerse yourself in it, you gain a feel for organic order. Um, But it could come from other directions. And then people also need to find some sort of faith that will help them to respond to violence with mildness. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so wherever that, wherever those two things come from, and again, the, the church can give you that. It doesn't necessarily give you that, but it can. And and wherever people find those things, I I hope they find it soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the culture is responsible for more than I think we'd like to admit as hyper-individualists, uh, the culture gives you those tools on some level. Now, mom and dad, I get it, give you something maybe counter-cultural, but they're still a part of the culture. And and that's interesting. Yeah, a way to become mild. For, for me, in my experience, it had a lot to do with living in foreign environments where I was really foreign. 
you know, if you go to Copenhagen, you can kind of get along. Like London's not going to throw you for a loop if you're coming from, you know, New York City. But if you dropped into a West African village filled with Muslims in Mali, you better become mild on some level. Like you have to slow down. And it really helped me. And it also introduced me to liturgy. How do people get introduced, I wonder? I mean, you're doing it on some level at the Holy Cross, right? I mean, something like that's happening there. I mean, not me personally, right? Like I, I'm the dean of the undergraduate of Hellenic College here at the seminary, and and it's um something happened here. I don't know when or what or how. Um, our chapel services are in some other world, and the, the campus is. It's but you can't point to any specific you cannot point to a specific programmatic intention. The campus somehow became holy ground. And I don't know when exactly that happened. I was here between 91 and 94 as a student. It wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. And um, now I've been here since 2005 and it has increased. Yeah. And I, I cannot put my finger on how, I met an abbess re recently, and I don't want to say her name because I had the feeling that she was the most prayerful person I've ever met. And and for some reason, she had been on campus, and she said, "I felt the same thing when we when we got when we when the nuns were staying there, we saw that something was happening." Well, you know, th that's the thing. You know, it's it's not so much an ideology or program. Some places just get touched by that fire. I don't know for how much longer we'll be like that. I'm sure. not saying that someone's trying to change it. I'm just saying it's in God's time. That's right. Um, but pilgrimage is crucial. If you if you if if you know of such a place, then try to go to such a place mm. for and and just sit there and say, "Huh, huh, something's happening. What is that thing?" Yeah, it reminds <laughs> it reminds me of a book called Sugar. It's, it's Ooh, a what a great book. title! Yeah, it's about sugar. It's like the oh. history of sugar. And it's <laughs> okay. written by a doctor. I can't remember his name right now. I should. Uh, but basically what he says is he started essentially like fat farms in the United States where people go to lose their fat. Because basically what he saw is no matter how hard he worked, no matter how hard he would have people lose. I mean, he would work one-on-one -on -one with people daily and they would lose weight. But then soon as he was detached from them and they went back to whatever they were doing right back on so he created farms and he was like this is going to do it we're going to get these people there and the culture changed but then they went back home i was just checking my gatorade i thought i had the sugar-free one it's the normal it's <laughs> there you go so he was, saying, he was saying the culture we've we've literally put sugar in everything that you you're not able to avoid it without a fundamental dislocation or relocation, you know? <laughs> so I think that's something like what you're saying. Um, <laughs> on, on some level, maybe not, maybe not. So yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, um, well, in general, I have to say that, you know, Jane Jacob said once, she said, beauty is not to be had for the asking. In other words, she didn't think that in, in city design, aesthetics could be, like a primary concern. 
but she thought that certain you know key key nodes or key buildings we should try to hire an architect who can make it beautiful and kind of roll the dice you don't know it's like making a tv show you don't know if it's going to be any good until so um but there's beauty in this other sense which is the, the wholeness and the integrity of a healthy neighborhood a healthy city street and in that sense she said you we know what are the four generators of city diversity and we can look where start with neighborhoods where only one of those four is missing add add the missing one and then move on move on from there and let you know sort of a rising tide lift all boats across the city and gradually get to city health is she um, did she understand would she have understood your vocabulary and we we you know we can't go all you guys got to read this part but would she understand the way you talked about city as liturgy or is that well, your that, twist? That, that was my first letter to her in January of 2000. And I said, you know, I'm doing a dissertation over here. And the way you describe cities, they are literally liturgies. And you know, I, I gave all the reasons why. Will you explain that for our listeners real quick? Yeah, that may, may not be quick, but it's it's time. People who know her will know her, the famous phrase that she coined, the ballet of the city street. So think of like a liturgy of the hours, but on a street, liturgy of the hours in the sense that at every, you know, every hour of the day, something is happening on that street, whether it's commuters leaving or commuters coming back or school children or the garbage truck or that kind of it's almost like a procession or a parade of players across that cityscape. And she said that is crucial for city safety, first of all, that there's always eyes on the street. It's not the police who keep us safe primarily, but each other. Well, the police is kind of a backup, right? You can call them. If there's... But um, that, that safety then also translates into commercial possibilities. There's enough people on a, a street at all times of the day that a, a store there, you know, can can make it make a go of it. Mm -hmm. She said there are there are stores down in Wall Street. This is 1959, 1960 when she's writing, that are literally open for three hours in the morning and one hour in the evening. That's it, because the rest of the day there's no one there. So she was looking for neighborhoods that there was something going on on the street almost 24 7 ideally so that ballet you know which i think of as, as this liturgy this work of the people it's a procession a return yeah involves, that's right you know, that's right it, it's the foundation of safety of commercial diversity in a city commercial exuberance um and it's the way we all work together to keep the systems of the city going the to pay for the streets and the the sidewalks and all the things that that happen then it's liturgy a city's liturgy in another sense the the relationships that form mm -hmm. that people become more actualized whatever the word is they become more individuated through those relationships um cities are places of you know risk and sacrifice and abundant reward and so, and so yeah. no it's so that it's not so much that I most of my coming up time in orthodoxy was in the city, New York City, in a 
church and monastery that was on Third Avenue. Uh, oh. I mean, I'm sorry, Third Street down in uh, down in Alphabet City. Okay. And so I keep seeing me up there for matins, just above the city that has the activity below the bread. I can see the bread guy. Yeah. And so it's all like a fractal. What's happening inside the window in there? The participation of the people, the work of the people, is happening below. Well, plus, so, I, I yeah, go on. No, go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Plus, I argue that, and and I I picked up on this in other researchers. Um, it, there's an entire kind of city genesis, like why does a city get founded? You know, a conqueror, an emperor, colonists, whatever. But in 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 Christian history, um, in the Middle East and in Europe, in Russia, in in America's Southwest. Where where a liturgy goes, a city follows. Yeah, and it's maybe it's because the monastics provide some kind of protection or inspiration, or but I think it's more existential than that. I think where the liturgy is, somehow life generates around it. Mm. And you know, my argument of why is Mount Athos, you know, avaton, as they say in Greek, why is it? block to one gender because otherwise it would just be a city it would just it would it would become the most sought after family real estate in the world i mean i i, I have friends who from their their porch this, this is a, a beautiful village west of kavala you can see the holy mountain across the water i'm just uh, first time i went there i'm like what your kids grew up like that looking at that what that's that's <laughs> an ultimate thing so so, so and it, you know, you see it in, in some female monasteries as well. They're avaton because otherwise it would just become, it wouldn't be the desert anymore. It would just become a city. And so, you're right, though. It would become a sought-after city. Oh, yeah. It would just become, you know, Los Angeles. All, all, those, all those, you know, from San Francisco, you know, through San Antonio or whatever, all those towns started as Catholic missions. That's right. But then it would play out again because people like St. Anthony then... And all those monks would leave. <laughs> Ironically. And, and, it, and it is playing out in St. Anthony's. How many people have moved to be within an easy drive of St. Anthony's? You know, That's hundreds right. of people have done that. There was no water there. The saint discovered the water. No one could live there. Now, you know, thousands of people can. So saints generate cities. And heaven, we know, is, is nothing but, is a city where nothing but liturgy happens. It is a city liturgy. So once I discovered it in her book, then I'm like, oh, book of Revelation. That's what, it, that's what we know. Hmm. Wow. What a discovery. It was fantastic. A... And she came back and said, you're right. She said, she you're, did. The best, you're the best interpreter of my work that I'm aware of. You're showing me what my own works mean. And we had that kind of relationship you know, for the next six years, five and a half years until she died. So she's at the core of your sort of intellectual abilities. She's in there. Uh, I am nothing without her. And I, and I think someone could say, you know, someone might not think that makes me anything. I don't care. I'd rather be nothing and tied to her. But genius. That's, that's the beauty of honor. When, when you know someone that way, nobody can tell you otherwise. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Right. That's she old was, school. That's old school. She's the, for me, she's the intellectual of the 20th century. And I know there are other more complicated people and 
Heisenberg and Einstein and physics or whatever, but I don't I don't see anyone seeing such in such a penetrating foundational way about the nature of order in, in important ways as she is. So just to end with this, because I am like I am inclined to take the enlightenment and go, oh gosh, get rid of that. But I feel that you're not willing to do that. Um, is there something good about the new world sort of, <laughs> that you say to yourself, let's not lose that part. Help us out. Because usually people are, you know, yeah, I don't know. Or I can give you a test too, if just to see how new world you are. It won't take long. It'll take just five minutes. Maybe that's the last thing we do. But tell me, what is it about the Enlightenment Society or post-Enlightenment post that we should say, hey, this is this is solid stuff? Well, the, the, the um, philosophically, I'm speaking. Yeah, philosophically, the experimental method, right, to say that we have observation, we formulate, you know, theories about that, about the natural world. Okay, we had that, you know, we had that since the pre-Socratics, we had that yeah. in human nature, which has always been there. Um, but what the Enlightenment does is it says, let's take that that uh, insight about the world and let's pose it let's formulate it in a way that we can make it risk death and if it resurrects then we'll believe it hmm. and that's pretty awesome yeah <laughs> wow <laughs> all right guys i do this every now and then Dr. Petitsis, I'm going to do it with you if you just give me five more minutes. It's it's a little test that we developed. What yeah. happened was is we kept talking about old world, new world, and I realized for some folks who have lived in you know pretty old school places, it was easy to understand what I was saying. But for many people, you know, they're Americans. They, they, it was a hard thing to detect. Like, what do you mean? Well, what, watch me flunk this thing completely. Okay, bring it on. <laughs> you can't flunk it. But it's five questions. And all it's trying to do is place you in, in the context of, and I designed this test, which clearly makes it really good science. Let's just be honest. It's got to be really good if I designed it scientifically. It's a disaster. But it it tends to work as a way to go, oh, and I'll tell you uh, how you do in one second. So all you got to do is answer. <laughs> just You're just answering three, which is like, and by the way, you won't get in trouble for this. You will retain your job after this is over, I promise. I hope so. <laughs> I promise. It's not political. You won't get canceled, probably. <laughs> I'm having fun with you. You won't. Three means, oh, heck yes. I heard the question. I am drawn, drawn toward a yes, a definite, definite yes. Three. Two is, eh, probably true. One is, eh, probably untrue. And zero is, is that is not, that is not, I'm not drawn to that. Okay. You ready? Three is all in, zero is no way. And yeah, yeah. then you get to it. <laughs> Here's your first question. When you die, you won't really die like all the way. It's more like you'll be sleeping in some fashion, you know, I don't know, in some fashion waiting for the next world. That's a three. Yeah, let's go with the three. Three, three. We're testing your old world, new world. Yeah. Bonus it's a, fee days. It's a, it's a, yeah. Three. Here's your second question. The best way to get to know 
me, I'm speaking on your behalf. The best way to get to know you is to ask someone else about you. Huh. Yeah, that's that's definitely at least a two, I would say. I, I, don't, I don't know about the best, but sure, I'll give it a two for sure. Two, yeah. Probably. It, it, it's okay. It works with me. It's the best. Yeah, the best. Oh, sorry. Third question. When you carry a picture around of a friend or a parent or somebody, and the picture's in your purse or your wallet, you're actually carrying that person around with you in some real way. Hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll give that a three. Why not? I thought you were going to ask. I often kiss that picture, and I was going to oh. give that a three, too. Oh, that would have been hot. <laughs> yeah, we got to send this back to the lab. All right, all right. <laughs> got to fix this test. What's, is there two more questions? <laughs> two more, and we're done. Um, respect is not earned. It is owed by you to others. Respect mm. is not earned. It's owed, primarily owed by you to others. Yeah, that's a three and a zero, I think. I, Interesting. I think I, I, because I think it's, we do, we do want to, I guess our integrity as humans, you know, I owe, I owe that respect to each person. Yeah. So I would say whatever that number would be. Three? Yes. I know what you mean. Let's this go with that good. then. Let's go with that then. Let's go with three. Yeah. And finally, the last question. And again, it works depending on your 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 station in life. But I, I, you hope and expect to take your parents in and live with you in the house when they get old, or slash, if that's not a situation for you, you fully expect to live in the house with your kids, preferably their house, when you get infirmed, old and infirmed. Hmm. Well, for for the parents, I would say you know three million. <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely you know they they gotta they, they're my problem um and my joy um with my kids i gotta say i don't know i don't have kids but i would think gosh can i just live on a boat i suppose, I suppose <laughs> maybe i'm a little conflicted there <laughs> well well we'll go with you as having the parent conversation <laughs> three okay you ready all right dr, yeah, dr. petitsis yeah. Tim, you um have scored a <laughs> 14 on the we call this the Lido meter. Just how light enlightened are you? The Lido meter tells us that you are not a winner of the Francis Bacon Award. That would be a zero. <laughs> so you did not win that. As you go up the uh, the uh, scale, you are not the high nooner, which is the new world. The bright light of the new world shines on you wherever you go. That's not you. Uh, you are not the shining city dweller on the hill. You're not even the suburban. You are the villager. Amen. Let's hear for the village. You're a high villager, too. Here's what you are. The old world way is in your bones. There's a really good chance you hate malls. <laughs> Places like Algeria and Ethiopia roll out the red carpet for you. I, I, don't, 
Oh, go on, go on. It's almost over, I promise. Your Spotify collection includes chants from some really hard to pronounce provinces, and you love <laughs> that you can't fully understand them, and you love hierarchy. Bring more hierarchy. That would be the villager, and you are it, scientifically, of course. So, so I don't hate malls, but for the record, I hate myself whenever I'm in a mall. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never been in a mall and not felt, a, you know, a, a creeping and steadily increasing sense of self-loathing. Not a, because I'm in a mall, just like existential self-loathing. What um, a better answer. That's a great but, answer, uh, yes. Um, there you go. So can I put in a plug for Hellenic College here, just briefly? Please do, please. That's hey, what I was just going to ask you. We're a liberal arts college, but we got one of the world's great chapels with liturgies, I mean, services twice a day. It's a holy place. Send your kids. Um, and we also have two professional majors, psychology and business management. Um, I want to put in a plug too for Beauty First Films and our liturgical seasons calendar. You can cut this out if you need to. No, we're not cutting this out at all. I want to hear But this. we have an Etsy store and you can just, if you search Beauty First Films, you will find, and our calendar overthrows the tyranny of months. So instead of each page being a separate month, each page is one of the seven main liturgical seasons of the church year. And it's a more humane way to think about time. It's a more holistic that's approach fantastic. it's less atomistic and smashing of your life i, I don't want to put in a plug for the book we've sold five thousand copies of the book if you want to buy the book go ahead and find it at stnicholaspress.net but yeah. no pressure there because well it is what it is it's a big let, fat heavy book 740 yeah. pages so yeah but i have to say it is making its rounds and it should lead everybody over to Helena College and to your work at the school. <laughs> it should. Because yeah, everyone, send you know, your 18-year-olds. They'll love it. They'll yes, love Helena. Absolutely. We'll link all that. Um, Dr. Petitsis, we'll link it. We'll make sure that whoever's listening to this, whether it be on the, the YouTube video channel or on our iPod or wherever, Spotify, wherever it is. We'll, and John, uh, until we'll until we meet again, this is this was very nice. And next time we can talk about Jane Jacobs' thoughts on economic development too. Be nice. Could we do that next time? Yeah, I would love that. I'm deep involved in what that looks like. So, yeah, and no, I'm not. I just have her perfect, pristine theory. <laughs> okay, that's that's next time. And you yeah, are I'll wonderful wait. and easy. And I'll, if I'm up in Boston, I'll look you up. You promise you won't be like, oh, not this guy. You know, what, what's, if you come to Boston, I haven't been to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in a long time, so we got to go there. We'll go. And if you're in the South, you know, we open this restaurant and we do the Georgian feast called the Supra. In fact, I'll even tell you about this article. I'll send it to you where it, there's all the symbolic nature of this dinner. And uh, our restaurant is going well. You, and you have a place at any of our tables if you come down, okay? Thank you. Thank okay. you. Thank you. God bless. Greet your people up there in Boston. All right. See you later, everyone. Take care. It was wonderful. Okay, saying goodbye to that guy. That's sad. I don't want to say goodbye to that guy. He, what? Yeah, that was us talking about all kinds of things. But mostly um, beauty and how we're missing the boat. It's a thing, guys, beauty. And so it goes on water. Heavy things lightly, 
Thank you to Dr. Timothy Petitus. Make sure you check out their work over at Hellenic College and Holy Cross and all that they're doing up in Boston. Visit them. Visit that chapel he talks about. Uh, or not. But most of all, check out the book. It's fantastic. Ethics of Beauty from 2019. Please check us out at First Things, where we're looking for your donation. That is true. Yeah, that is true. www.first-things.org. We're in a drive to make a match. We have a beautiful family foundation that's offered us $75,000. If we can raise and match that $75,000 by January 1st, ticking clock sound here. Time is ticking. Be a part of our matching donation push. Become a recurring donor or not. Either way, we'll count you toward the beauty and the love that is feeding our field workers and supporting their projects. Check us out. Check out our projects. We've got a, not a few. They're on our website. Go check us out and become a donor. At first, thanks. Thanks.